Today, we are joined by Dr. Tyler Leeson, who is the Curator of Vertebrate Paleontology at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Uh, Dr. Leeson has done quite a bit of work with uh, turtles and tortoises and sort of evolutionary development of different features and anatomical aspects, um, as well as just the sort of phylogenetics of different uh, uh, testudines. Uh, and we're really excited to talk to him today. It's sort of a, a new um, aspect. We haven't really covered this area yet, so really exciting. So thanks for coming on, Dr. Leeson. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to be here. So, Dr. Leeson, uh, what what got you interested in, in turtles and tortoises, and how did you get involved in paleontology? Yeah, I mean, I think I've always been interested in turtles. I mean, they are uh, God's noblest creature, after all. I think we can all agree on that. Um, but yes. in all seriousness, I've, uh, you know, I grew up in southwestern North Dakota, a uh, really small town, kind of right in the middle of nowhere, but right in the middle of uh, dinosaur-bearing rock, sort of Earth's last dinosaur ecosystem. So my earliest childhood memories are out running around on the Badlands looking for and finding fossils. And you find lots of dinosaurs, Triceratops and T-Rex and, and lots of other things. And, I, and of course, those other things we would find are were turtles, bits of turtles in the Hell Creek Formation. And I'd find you know, lots and lots of chunks, just pieces of turtle shell, just pieces. And I, as a kid, I always wanted to find a complete one just because a complete shell, just because they were quite rare. Um, so that was just kind of my earliest, uh, my earliest memories of like just wanting to find kind of almost like the treasure hunting aspect of wanting to find a complete turtle shell and eventually finding some of those. And then I think it, my more of my academic interest started in college where I went to work with uh, Dr. Scott Gilbert, who's at Swarthmore College and who studies the uh, evolutionary developmental origin of the turtle shell. And then finally, I went to, to Yale, uh, where I ultimately decided to work on, you know, the origins of turtles, because this was this, you know, a really magnificent group of animals that's still alive today. And we didn't really have a good understanding of who they were related to, uh, how they got their shell, when they got their shell. So there are all these really big uh, evolutionary questions that had not yet been answered. So that's, you know, kind of my my uh trajectory of of uh, interest in fossil turtles i mean that that's uh it's real interesting and i think it kind of starts us off in a real a great place uh obviously when when people think about the turtle the first thing that comes to mind is the shell uh, and and as you said you've done work with sort of the development of that feature but when you really think about the shell it seems sort of cumbersome and that there's a lot of things like why would a feature like that evolve why would that be the case and I, i'm just sort of curious like what have you done in the realm of that sort of area of research and and why do you think what's the purpose of the shell and and kind of how did it come into existence yeah i mean it is the iconic thing about turtles right the turtle yeah. shell it is the iconic feature now, obviously there's other things the lack of teeth and uh sort of the the anapsid skull which I'm, i think we'll get to later and right, but I mean, yeah. it's the shell and uh of course today the function is uh largely protection there are other functions in terms of storage of various minerals and um which which helps with uh estivation and uh being able to go underwater and without oxygen for long chunks of time but in general, right, the, the function now is, is for, for function. 
or is for protections, excuse me. Um, but I mean, a lot of these complex features don't evolve for their current uh, functional, uh, for their functional reason, right? I mean, there's many, many things. A classic example, of course, is, is feathers. Dinosaurs had feathers. Uh, relatives of T-Rex had feathers. And, you know, today the feathers are for flight, but that is not why they evolved because, again, we have all of these other features. So it's a classic exaptation where there's a different functional reason to begin with that then gets co-opted into its current functional purpose of, of prote protection. And so with feathers, of course, we think it's sexual selection or thermal regulation that then gets co-opted into flight. And for me, I have the, you know, I had this idea, uh, which is part of my, my PhD, that the, you know, the question really is, is why do turtles have broadened ribs? Because ribs are so crucial for breathing. And this is why the ribs of a whale versus the ribs of, ribs of a snake versus the ribs of a T-Rex versus the ribs of, you know, pretty much any animal, they all look alike. They're long cylindrical structures because it's, it's tied to breathing, which is crucial for living. And so turtles, on the other hand, they have broadened their ribs uh, you know, throughout development, and then eventually they right. suture those ribs together to create the immobile shell. And then, you know, of course, there's other bones that go into making the shell. But that, to me, is the real crucial question. You know, or, or, or you know, like why broaden your ribs to begin with uh, when you already, you know, when they're when they're tied to uh, breathing, to, tied to uh, respiration. And you know, there are other animals that that have broadened ribs. And, uh, you know, uh, these are animals that largely that they spend a lot of time burrowing or that use their their arms for digging in these big sweeping motions, these big forearm like mo uh, digging motions. And if you're a big forearm digger like that, you know, it creates lots of torsion in your in your body. And um, it's one way to counteract those forces and to counteract that torsion is by shortening the space between your ribs, the intercostal space, and creating putting bone there because it just basically stiffens everything up. So this is things like you know with the silky anteater um, and other animals like that that they they tend to do. So I had this idea that well maybe these earliest turtles uh, were burrowers. Um, you know, so I had the idea, uh, but the problem with it was, was testing that idea. And we, and what we needed was some fossils that, pre, you know, that had a good postcranium, that had good hands and arms and other elements preserved to test that idea. And then in, I think, 2000 and, and um, like 12, 2014, this amazing fossil was found, this amazing uh, fossil that I think is an early, the earliest stem turtle, uh, a new specimen of Eunotosaurus was found that had hands, it had the arms, and because then you could look to see like, are there other osteological correlates for digging preserved? You know, not just the ribs, because we knew Eunotosaurus had these really distinctively broadened ribs. And sure enough, it had really big claws uh, uh, on its hands. It had a really big lecranon process on its ulna. Uh, so, and, and then we did histology of the limbs to look up the Sharpie fibers. And the Sharpie fibers are just the, you know, the attachment of the muscles into the bone. And we could see that sure enough, it was jam packed with Sharpie fibers and that the cortical bone of the ulna um, was really, really thick. 
uh, which I always like to joke, you know, all of these things that the olecranon process, the Sharpie fibers, the thickened cortical bone, all uh, indicated that Unotosaurus was jacked. <laughs> that it had really big uh, uh, forelimbs. And, and, you know, one of the ideas then would be, you know, the idea that I had was that it was a burrowing creature using its big hands, its big forelimbs to push through the substrate to burrow. Um, it's a thing that a lot of modern day turtles do today as well, like like Gopharis. It has the, the same type of motion, the big forelimb um, uh, strokes uh, for, for digging these holes. And then the question is like, well, why burrow? Uh, well, if you go back to when Unotosaurus was alive 260 million years ago, it was living in South Africa and it was living during Pangaea times uh, when all the continents were, were together and it was incredibly, incredibly arid. And so one way to deal with these really arid conditions, a lot of what a lot of animals do today is by going underground. And by going underground, you're, you're able to have more uh, temperature control of, uh, of, uh, of, you know, of, of your surroundings. So it's not so hot, it's not so, um, so arid. So kind of a long, you know, it's a big question, you know, of like why, but so I think the initial reason for the origin of the shell was for burrowing that was the initial impetus that spurred the broadening of the ribs and then you then with the broadening of the ribs the next big thing is you have to have a decoupling of those ribs from breathing because the ribs ancestrally are used in uh, locomotion and with breathing and so you have to decouple them and every group of organisms i shouldn't say that most groups of amniotes have found ways of, around that Mammals, we have the diaphragm, right? So we're able to, we no longer really use our ribs uh, as the primary force of ventilation. We still use them some. Anybody who goes out and for a long run knows that their intercostal muscles, all the hepaxial musculature uh, gets really, really sore and tired. Yep. Crocodiles have the hepatic piston. Birds have the uniflow directional uh, breathing mechanisms. Lizards, they still are largely have that constraint which is called a carrier's constraint after uh, Dave Carrier, who first proposed this idea. But so anyway, I know this is a long-winded answer, but I think the original function was for burrowing that led to the decoupling of the complete decoupling of the ribs from breathing. Cause you have to have that before you can lock your ribs up into a shell, which has only happened once, right? It's only happened with turtles. Lots right. of other animals have shells, but they always make a shell a different way. And that's by adding osteoderms on top of the body. So crocodiles and armadillos and placodonts and many groups of animals form shells, but they, they, their ribs are still the same boring rod-like shape because they're so functional or you know, you know, tied to, to breathing. Um, and it's only turtles that, that do it a different way. And so you have to decouple uh, the ribs from breathing. And once you can do that, then, you know, evolution and natural selection, you can start tinkering with, with things. Um, and I think and that, which is exactly what's happened with, with turtles. So, and then, you know, and so it wasn't then until later than that, the shell then became, you know, it, its current functional role of uh, protection. That's really interesting. I, one thing that's, that's also kind of interesting to think about for me, at least is that, when I was younger and kind of first looking into this area, I thought, uh, sort of logically, if you found fossils, you'd expect to see 
an early stem turtle that kind of had some sort of remnants of like osteoderms or something that was kind of related to that. So, but you notice doesn't really look like a turtle. So how did you sort of narrow down, sort of hone in on the fact that that could have been a stem turtle and, and choose to analyze that, that fossil? Yeah. I mean, I'm with you, uh, Michael, on that one. I mean, I was a full proponent of the uh, turtle shell forming via the acquisition of osteoderms. Like, I fully expected to find an animal that had a bunch of osteoderms, you know, because there was this long fight between developmental biologists who were looking at the development of these turtles and seeing these ribs growing, you know, the peri. Uh, the uh, intramembranous bone growing out of the periosteum of the rib and the neural spines saying like the shell forms via the broadening of the ribs and the broadening of the neural spines of the vertebrae. And then you had paleontologists you're finding things like pariasaurs, these early reptiles that are found in Russia and South Africa that had lots of osteoderms. And you can imagine, you know, you just have more osteoderms, more osteoderms, and eventually the osteoderms meld with the underlying ribs to form the shell. So these were these two comp competing ideas. And I was really in the osteoderm camp. Like I fully expected we were going to find an animal that had, you know, um, ribs that were with osteoderms melding together. And then that all changed in 2008 when Odontochelys semitestacea uh, was described from the uh, Triassic of China. And that just blew my mind. I mean, because this is this turtle that has half a shell. It has a full plastron. The full plastron is formed. It has these distinctively broadened ribs that haven't fused together yet and no osteoderms. So it was in that moment that I became a believer that, you know, that, that the developmental biologists were right all along. You know, this 100, 120 year fight, year fight between the, those two camps, in my opinion, it was the bringing, the, you know, that fossil brought those two camps together, the paleontologists and the developmental biologists, and showed that it was the broadening of the ribs. And so then my search image changed because before I was always thinking like, like you just said, we we're going to find a, a, these, one of these early stem turtles that had lots of osteoderms and other features of turtles. That's what we were looking for. And so Adonachilles was found. This is early on in my PhD in an incredibly formative fossil. I didn't help describe it or anything, but that. It, so then I started to think about Adonachilles. What else looks like Adonachilles? And I remembered this image in the back of uh, a Romer's, uh, uh, you know, Alfred Romer's book. Um, on reptiles, uh, he had an image of Eunotosaurus. And Eunotosaurus was thought you know, back in the day to be an early stem turtle, but then later paleontologists were like, yay, it has broadened ribs, but we all know that the shell forms with osteoderms. Eunotosaurus lacks osteoderms, therefore it can't be an early turtle. So these two questions were like, intertwined, right? They were just, they were, they were intertwined and one was driving the other. And so now with Odonachilles, I was like, dang, maybe Eunotosaurus is an early stem turtle. So I talked to my advisor, flew down to South Africa and uh, looked at all the Eunotosaurus specimens. And it's a common animal. There's a lot of Eunotosaurus specimens. There's almost 60 uh, specimens of Eunotosaurus at different ontogenetic stages. And then we just started to find more and more features in the ribs, in the, uh, the, the, the body of the animal, as well as the skull of the animal that indicated that it very likely was that one of these early uh, stem turtles. Um, 
And so at 260 million years old, it would, it would be the oldest stem turtle. Uh, and I just love it because since, since 2000, you know, we're living in the golden age for the figuring out the origin of turtles, because for 120 years, the oldest turtle was Priganachilles from the Triassic of Germany. And uh, it already had a fully formed shell. So it didn't really say that much about the origin of the turtle shell itself. So that was like 120 years. That's all we had. And then 2008, we get Odon Achilles. And then I started publishing my stuff on Nodosaurus, you know, starting in 2010 up until the recent. And then uh, more recently, Pap Achilles was described at 240 million years old. And I think that, you know, brilliantly fills the gap between Nodosaurus and Odon Achilles. And then even since then, there's been another stem turtle found from China called uh, Eorinc Achilles. So now, again, just in the last uh, you know, 12, 14 years, we've had this all of these new fossil stem turtles from the Permian through the, the middle to uh, late uh, Triassic coming on board, coming online, and really informing the way we think about the evolution of these animals and how and when the turtle formed its shell. Well, that 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 was really that was really interesting. At, what is like the time frame from the earliest stem turtle to when we finally get to a turtle that has a recognizable carapace with full peripheral bones and uh, everything like that? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, we you know we get the earliest turtle at uh, with Unotosaurus at two hundred and sixty. It has broadened ribs, no plastron. Then you have to go all the way up to, uh, you know, you get to Papakiles, 240, and that has broadened ribs and broadened gastralia, which forms the plastron, but it's still, you know, it's still not recognizable, I would say, as a turtle. And then Odontochiles has a full plastron, so that's the full recognizable feature of a turtle to form, is an Odontochiles with the plastron. And then it's not until you get to either uh, uh, Pregantachiles or this other, other turtles, a Paleocursus and Proteocursus, that are all roughly the, the same age at around 220 million years that you have a fully recognizable turtle shell with a full carapace, with all the peripherals, uh, as well as the full plastron. So there's basically 40 million years you know, separating those from you know, Unotosaurus to uh, Pregantachiles and the, these other early Triassic turtles with a fully formed shell. What 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 is sort of the functional significance? Do you think of having a plastron before a carapace? Seems like it could almost support the burrowing hypothesis in a way. If you've got like a a gular that's kind of fit and designed for burrowing, it could help. But I seem to recall a Don Achilles was more of a a marine animal, so it's right. not. So what what do you think that the functional significance for, of that is? Yeah, so I mean, if we go back to to this idea that these turtles are burrowers, and that's the initial the initial um, reason for broadening of the ribs, and so they're using, and you know, there's many ways to burrow. You can be like a dog and scratch burrow, um, you know. But what the burrowing that I'm talking about is with the forelimbs, and that's these big sweeping motions with the forelimbs, right? And you know, to dig into the ground. Now that is the same stroke that turtles and other animals use for swimming. So I think a lot of these animals, there was a, there was a almost a pre-adaptation, I hate to use that word, but they, they, they were well adapted for burrowing as well as for swimming. And that's why I think we see a lot of these early turtles kind of going back and forth in that interface 
between because it wasn't probably wasn't an either or they had a lot of the, the burrowing turtles probably were very well adapted or very well adept at swimming as well and so it's the same motion so now the plastron your question uh why, what about it and so i think then with that in odont achilles and this is an idea that other people propose but that it maybe acted as a ballast because one thing, you know, you have to help the animal uh, go, you know, go up and down in, in the water column. And I, I like that idea. I think that is a, that is a, a solid, a solid idea. Because it still can't be for protection, right? The shell that at that point, if you're exposing the upper part uh, above your ribs, if somebody, if an animal bites you, your belly might be, uh, you know, protected. Uh, but your ribs and your lungs aren't. So, I mean, that whole protective thing can't, can't be the case. So I think it, it was, you know, these early turtles were going back and forth uh, between the, the land and the water. And we see that with these different groups. And with yeah, I think with Odon Achilles as being one of these near shore marine animals, it may have acted as a ballast to help it move up and down in the water column. Do you think there also could have been some camouflage aspect to it with sea turtles? That's been something proposed as like a lighter plastron. It sort of blends them a bit better with for predators that are looking from the bottom up. Yeah, I think I yeah, that's a reasonable idea as well. I mean, I think uh, I hadn't I haven't haven't really thought about that, but I think that is reasonable as well. I just don't think because I know. I, it can't again be for protection at that stage. That's just one thing that, mm -hmm. that I'm kind of, you know, very much against because you're exposing your back, you're exposing your lungs, um, and so for the protective reason. But I like that from a camouflage. Yeah, if you're higher up and from animal lower down, um, I, I could see that as well. That could be another. And a lot of these things, it's, it, it might not just be one or the other. It's usually there's kind of a, a number of, of factors going on here. So. I think it's a reasonable hypothesis for sure. Yeah, and who knows? Maybe there wasn't really a functional, like you said earlier, it's some of this stuff just happens and then it kind of fits a, an environment and it works to some extent. Um, from sort of an evolutionary development perspective too, the the turtle shell is real interesting. And I, I've come across some stuff that talks about sort of the interplay between the chondral and the dermal bone. Uh, but that I, for someone that doesn't really understand kind of how that, that's sort of a confusing thing. Um, if you don't understand kind of what that means in context of the ossification and so on. Um, but sort of in what way is the shell unique from sort of an osseous perspective? Yeah, well, it's the bones that, you know, for, that form it for one, you know, the turtle shell is formed of around 50 bones. And then it's not, uh, you know, for a lot of these other animals, it's all dermal bone. It's formed by osteoderms. And so osteoderms are just ossified scales. You know, so think of a scale and, and then that forms intramembranously, which basically means there's no cartilaginous uh, stage. So it goes from tissue to bone with no cartilaginous stage versus something where like our long bones are, are endochondral, you know, it's a, it's a different type of, of ossification. And so the turtle shell, I think is, just, it's super unique because the, you know, if you look at the earliest beginnings of the shell, it's uh, from an osseous perspective, it's the, you, you have, if you look at the cross section of a rib, normal ribs are just going to be nice and round endochondral bone. And then you get these little spindles, these little spicules of bone growing up out of the uh, uh, the endoc you know the, the endochondral or the perichondral collar 
of the rib. You know, there's intramembranous type uh, types of ossification. And that's the broadening of the ribs. You see that in the vertebrae as well. And so you have a unique blending of, of endochondral, which is again, cartilaginous elements with the ribs and, and the vertebrae, as well as the unique mode of, of sending bone, intramembranous bone out of that perichondral collar of the rib. And then the shell, you, know, you, you also incorporate lots of other elements. So you're incorporating the shoulder girdle bones. So in the plastron, you have you know, the cl your clavicle as well as you know, humans don't have an interclavicle, but other animals do an interclavicle. And the clavicles go down into forming that uh, front part of the, the plastron. And then the, there's another part, the nuchal bone, uh, that's also formed by these shoulder girdle bones, but these dermal ossifications. So again, no cartilaginous intermediates. So the shell is just, it's incredibly unique. It's 50 bones, it's formed of ribs, uh, vertebrae, a splitting of the shoulder girdle, some of the bones going down in the plastron, some going into the carapace. And then at the very end, the very last stage that we see both ontogenetically as well as phylogenetically in the, you know, in the fossil record is then the appearance of all of the peripheral bones around the outside. And those are likely uh, modified scales, modified osteoderms. So you have you you kind of have it all. I mean, most animals again form just using osteoderms. Turtles do osteoderms plus endochondral bones plus dermal bones. Um, so they're using kind of all aspects of uh, the ossification scale, <laughs> which was your initial question, as well as just different types of bones to form their shell. That's uh, it's interesting to think about the homologies of the shell and where that kind of comes from. I, I mean, at this point, it's bringing to mind something where I, I thought about this. I spent uh, the first semester in college reading a book about it was uh, a bunch of different perspectives on the evolutionary debate. And they had sort of the creationist side of things, the intelligent design side, then sort of the more natural selection side. And it, it kept coming to mind that one of the flaws or maybe not a flaw, but one of the aspects of the natural selection-based mode of evolution that the intelligent design group sort of pushed back against was the fact that nowhere could anyone highlight a fact where a large jump in morphology occurred in the fossil record. And, and I think that that's likely not the case, but some people have proposed the turtles could be a great example of this, but it seems like maybe it was more, the change was a bit more gradual than maybe an evolutionary development perspective would, would have you believe. I mean, what do you think about the prospects of sort of that hopeful monsters kind of uh, development of turtles? Is that likely or was it more gradual? Yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting idea, and it's certainly one that a lot of creationists latched onto. Because again, for a hundred years, the oldest fossil was Perganochelys, had a whole, had a fully formed shell. So you had people saying, like, "Look, you have sort of these lizard-like things, and then all of a sudden you have a Perganochelys in, in the shell. Like, that's a huge and very fast jump." So therefore, you know, therefore God, therefore hopeful monster. I mean, there's many, you know, there's many jumps there. Uh, because we didn't have a good fossil record of these earliest stem turtles. But man, has that changed, right? Since the discovery of Odonochelys in 2008 and the description of it in 2008. Um, 
now we just have this whole array of these more you know transitional or intermediate types of morphologies we have things that have broad ribs with a full plastron with don achilles we have things that with broad ribs um, and broad gastralia in uh, Papakiles, and then we have things even further back. So I think that whole idea, we can kind of throw that out the window, in my opinion. Um, we don't have to invoke uh, the hopeful monster or any sort of like uh, big giant step, uh, evolutionary step um, to explain the evolution of the turtle shell, because we now have the fossils. And we also owe have kind of the understanding or a better, I shouldn't say, a, we have a better understanding of, of the timing of a lot of this and that it occurred, you know, we talked earlier that it was 40 million years separating Unotosaurus from a fully formed shell. 40 million years, that's a long, long time, right, for, for natural selection to do sort of um, its r regular things. And so we don't have to, again, invoke this idea that, that turtles are, are, are hopeful monsters, in my opinion. And we're, we're, and we're only going to find more fossils, right? We're only going to find more of these, these intermediate fossils. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of the same thing was, it was, was invoked back in the day with birds in flight. You know, how, do you, how do you get to, you know, animals like that? And of course, since then, we found thousands of amazing uh, intermediate morphologies between, between uh, dinosaurs, theropod dinosaurs, meat-eating dinosaurs, and birds that show again go you know feathers and how the, how they evolved from these simple structures to these over millions of years more complex structures so we had similar arguments then the similar things have been you know you know trying to uh, you know be invoked for turtles and i think it's it's just a lack of the fossil record which is now getting filled in so it's really really exciting time to be a turtle uh, paleo uh, turtle paleontologist that's uh, yeah. That, I think that's well said. And it seems like that that sort of hypothesis, obviously, it, it sort of seems like a a way to sort of make an easy explanation of the fact that we don't have enough data at the time. Sort of just saying that this probably happened really rapidly and we can't see it, rather than it happened gradually. We just have more data to fill in. Yep. And that that sort of seems like what what the case is, and it's cool to see that. I mean, twenty years later, how it's how that's actually kind of played out. Um, I, I so something you touched on earlier too was the breathing mechanisms and the ventilatory as, uh, apparatus of turtles, and that was initially I I that paper I I remember reading it and just everything about that was awesome. I mean, the, the graphics are amazing and everything, and it just it sort of makes sense. It's it's well done. Um, but yeah, thank you. maybe you could just go over kind of the, how the, the ventilatory aspect of, or apparatus of Colonians works. I mean, it's really fascinating. It'd be interesting to hear kind of how you explain that. Yeah. So turtles, you know, we'll start with what we, what we know with, with the uh, living turtles and, you know, turtles have a, a, a unique, uh, ventilatory apparatus and it's a very, very simple apparatus, which is, which is awesome. I mean, uh, so, you know, basically turtles have a shell and then they have their lungs between the shell and then they're all of their guts and whatnot. And then, and then they have a muscular sling that goes from the front of the shell all the way back to the back of the shell. And when that muscle contracts, it lifts up the intestines 
uh, and pushes them against the uh, you know the, the 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 carapace, and the animal exhales. And then there's another muscle in the back of the shell, a cup-shaped muscle that's attached to that the bag, the bag-like muscle. And when that muscle contracts, it it flattens out, pulls the bag down, and then turtles uh, can breathe. And so there's these these two hypaxial muscles really that drive uh, turtle uh, respiration. And so that's been known for a really long time. You know that these that this is the way in which uh, which turtles breathe. Uh, very simple. It's not over. You know, not complex. Turtles aren't the most aerobic animals, right? They're not running around doing crazy things or flying. I mean, they're remarkable in many, many respects, but in terms of uh, their metabolism, they're not that, that remarkable, I guess, in, in the upper end. They're remarkable in their lower end, which we could talk about later. But so, that, you know, and so we know turtles don't use their ribs in lung ventilation. They're the only group of amniotes that no longer use their ribs in any in any aspects or any in any respect in lung ventilation, um, but because even mammals like we still use it use our ribs a little bit. It's largely driven by um, our diaphragm. You know we talked about uh, uh, crocodiles and whatnot. So so anyway, let's start. So we that's what with modern day turtles. And so now, what's the ancestral condition of of breathing in amniotes? And this is again something that that other people have studied. And, uh, and that, that we know, but uh, the way, the ancestral way in which amniotes breathe are, are by using their, their ribs and then the muscles around their ribs for breathing. And so um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a dual function then for these muscles. One is for locomotion because the ancestral animals were, you know, kind of like, kind of lizard-like, we'll just think of them as lizard-like, and they're walking like this, right? And so they're going back and forth and that, to increase their stride length. And so those muscles, those hypaxial muscles, those muscles basically, your, your core muscles, when you're doing core, you're working your hypaxial muscles. They're involved in locomotion and then they're also involved in breathing. And so there's a dual function. And what that means is you can only do one of those functions at a time. And so this is something called carrier's constraint after the Dave Carrier, who proposed the idea in 1990, I believe. And uh, um, and so that's problematic, right? If you, because a lot of it's beneficial to do both, to locomote and to breathe at the same time. And you can imagine evolutionarily when one group figured that out, that there's, a, there's an arms race to to uh, to uh, to catch up, if uh, if you will. So every group except for lizards has kind of figured that out um, of, of of decoupling those locomotion from from uh, from breathing. Um, but lizards, so if we go back to lizards, they still kind of have the ancestral condition. So they they are able to do some gular fluttering and they are able to do some other things that allow them to locomote and breathe a little bit. But for the most part, most lizards can only do one or the other run or or breathe so that's why when you're chasing a lizard um, it's holding its breath because it can't you know it's using all of its muscles for locomoting and so its strategy is either to go up a tree or or down a hole to uh to to escape and then other animals have figured out ways of, of decoupling these things and uh, again crocodiles they have the hepatic piston where their whole guts kind of move back and forth being driven by this 
this this muscle that's attached to their pelvis and attached to their liver and that's what's kind of driving the the, the changes in pressure in their thoracic uh, uh, cavity and then birds have figured out another way and then turtles figured out yeah, uh, an even um, you know a separate way and it's you know and with them it's it's using these these muscles and so I think there again, sort of the, the evolutionary story that I've come up with there is that turtles initially were burrowing and, uh, um, you know, with those big strokes, which we talked about earlier, and it was creating torsion. And so what, what, what was happening then, those ribs were broadening, shortening the intercostal space, the distance between the ribs. And that was creating this kind of this rigid, this rigid, um, um, you know, rigid core, if you will. And then there, there was a, you know, going a, a dual function uh, of the ribs and the muscles ancestrally, which we just talked about, to a division of function in, uh, in turtles, where the hypaxial muscles are driven purely into a ventilatory role, and then the ribs are driven into a purely structural, uh, a structural role. And that happens over the course of, of course, uh, tens, tens of millions uh, of years. And, and then the way we tested that was by looking, you know, for when did the lung ventilatory mechanism um, uh, system in turtles appear. And the way we did that um, was by cutting up a lot of ribs of this animal, Eunotosaurus. And because turtles have a very unique hypaxial muscul musculature system, again, they have the bag, but they don't have any intercostal muscles, muscles between the ribs. And so, because it's all formed by, 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 um, by bone. And so if you look at the histology of a modern turtle, you can see, you can find Sharpie fibers here in the front, no Sharpie fibers in the middle, and then Sharpie fibers in the back. And again, Sharpie fibers are just the fibrinous uh, insertion of muscles into bone. So it's a way for us to kind of see uh, muscles in, in the skeleton of these, of these animals. And so they have a unique histological signature and that signature is identical, you know, is identical to that in Eunotosaurus. So we could see that Eunotosaurus uh, already at 260 million years ago seems to have had a ventilatory mechanism uh, like that of, um, of, of modern day turtles in that they lack intercostal muscles. There are no muscles, you know, basically in between their ribs and only had fibrinous, you know, a muscle in the front, a muscle in the back, which to us suggested it had a nice muscular, muscular bag. That's again, one of the primary uh, mechanisms for breathing in turtles. That's, uh, that's some interesting reasoning. And, and it's cool that you bring all those pieces of evidence together. And it's kind of uh, abstract, but it, 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 now, abstract wouldn't be the word for it. It's it's sort of deductive reasoning, I guess. So it be, would be the case. That that's yeah. it's really interesting. Yeah, and you, you mentioned metabolism, and that that's one area where I'm I'm pretty interested in that, and and just the the like you said, the low rate of turtles is incredible. I, I'm curious where the they have a lot of adaptations physiologically to deal with the noxia tolerance and low temperatures. Where did those adaptations? come into play and how does that interact with the the evolution of the ventilatory apparatus yeah i mean so a lot of modern animals that are living in burrows that are living underground they have those sort of those same adaptations for living in uh, environments that are low in oxygen because if you're living in a burrow 
and you're you know respirating in your burrow, I mean, it creates very low oxygen conditions. So a lot of animals that live in burrows have these have very very low uh, metabolisms. Um, and so I think a lot of these features that sort of define modern day turtles can all of those can be traced back to Eunotosaurus in Pangaea times at, at 260 million years ago. Um, again, uh, where there's a there is a big advantage for living in underground. There's a big there's a lot of environmental reasons, and that's just because the environment was very very harsh. You think I think of uh, it would be analogous to the middle of modern day Australia. Uh, very, very hot and very, very arid, very difficult to survive. And then a common mechanism or common um, lifestyle, I guess, for a lot of animals that live in those conditions, uh, these arid conditions, uh, is, is a life underground, either underwater, if there is water, but in the middle of Australia, there's not a lot of water. And uh, uh, so a lot of animals then, then go underground. And so... I think that's where you can see sort of the, the earliest start for these, the, the crazy metabolism that we see with turtles today, uh, where, where they can live, you know, in anoxic environments for, for 24 hours or longer. They can go underwater, right? Modern day turtles can go underwater uh, and under, under the ice, like up in Canada, when they estimate for, for the winter for up to six months. So just they can shut down their their metabolism um, for for that long, and so I think a lot of those initial features, like obviously those are highly derived things, but a lot of the a lot of the the beginnings of the, the metabolic aspects can be traced all the way back to uh, this this animal, you know, the saurus. That's uh, that's really fascinating to hear that. that that it's from like medical perspective that I've done some looking into that and it's just a lot of the adaptations to lowered metabolism they sort of fit into that the aging and and, and that sort of camp and, and field of study but also it seems like there's a lot of uh, untapped potential for biomedical discoveries and you have sort of parallel adaptations for sugar regulation diabetes and that sort of thing and that that's real interesting to me personally the, those those implications so to know where that comes from and you think that it happened more on land and then became more developed as radiations occurred into the water and it probably maybe scaled back and then, yeah, it changed over time. That's, yeah, uh, yeah. I think utterly fascinating. I, I completely agree with you. And, and then there's so many uh, other aspects to that. I mean, that, that has allowed turtles to be so incredibly successful because of their their low metabolism, uh, they have been able to, you know, the low metabolism, in, I guess their lifestyle, either underground or underwater, have, a, you know, helped allow turtles survive three of Earth's last uh, uh, mass extinctions. So turtles have survived three of the, of, of, uh, the five mass extinctions in Earth's history. And a lot of that, we think, is because of, again, their, their very, very slow metabolism. There, the fact that a lot of turtles during you know the end Cretaceous times or the end Permian times were were, were burrowing. So other researchers have proposed that animals that survived the the, uh, the end Permian mass extinction, which is the mother of all mass extinctions, where ninety five percent of life goes extinct, there's a higher propensity of animals that burrow to survive that mass extinction than animals that don't burrow. 
And so turtles likely were burrowing. And so that's probably why they survived that. And then we fast forward to Earth's last mass extinction at 66 million years ago with the extinction of the dinosaurs and where 75% of life on Earth goes extinct. And it's for, you know, for similar reasons why we think that turtles survived. They were underground, underwater, uh, when, that, when the asteroid hit Earth, creating that thermal pulse that baked the surface of the Earth. So if you weren't underground or underwater, then uh, you were essentially broiled. Um, and then their slow metabolism allowed them to kind of hunker down, estivate, uh, and, and, and weather out the, the nuclear winter that uh, resulted with, uh, you know, the blasting of parts of modern day Mexico into the atmosphere, blocking out the sun, you know, hindering photosynthesis, knocking out the ocean systems, the plant systems. And so then turtles, you know, turtles were the winners of all of these mass extinctions and the commonality, you know, and then it all comes down to uh, their metabolism, I think, and their, and their lifestyle of, 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 where, of where they were living, essentially. Yeah, that's a, and and these mass extinctions themselves could have acted as sort of uh, environmental uh, impetus for natural selection to act on on increasing metabolic capacity or lowered metabolic rate. I, it, it's interesting to think like if if in the future there are treatments for certain illnesses developed out of parallel pathways related to that evolution of anoxia tolerance, that sort of thing. You can almost say that mass extinction is the reason that the it, it could have played into the fact that medical treatments, it's kind of an interesting yeah. comparison. <laughs> yeah, for but, sure. Uh, yeah. 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 Well, I, I think something else that we can sort of transition into a bit uh, is just the, the whole placement of turtles. Uh, it, another fascinating aspect of them is the fact that we don't, it doesn't seem like we really know, um, paleontologists don't really know yet where they belong on the tree of, of reptiles and, and sort of abroad. So what, what do you think is the most likely scenario? Where, where do the turtles nest in it? Yeah, what a question, right? I mean, that was one of the reasons why I went and studied turtles was because it's crazy. I mean, well, one, they, they got this crazy morphology in the shell, and we've just talked a lot about their shell. But here we have this major group of animals alive today, and we still, with all of the technologies that we have and all the data sets that we have at our fingertips, we still don't have a good understanding of uh, who they're related to, who among modern animals are they related to. And so if we just look at uh, analyses that have been published within the last 10 to 15 years, turtles have been placed on every possible part of the amniote tree of life. And that's just mind boggling, right? They've been placed next to crocodiles, next to birds, next to the clade of crocodiles and birds. They've been placed next to the clade of crocodiles, birds, and lizards. They've been placed next to lizards. Um, they've been placed kind of all, all over these things. And I've published a fair bit of conflicting uh, uh, data, well, conflicting uh, placements on uh, where turtles go. And it's because different data sets give you a different answer. And to me, that's really, really interesting because, you know, we, there's one history of life on Earth. So some of these data sets have to be wrong. And so we, that, to me, that's a really interesting question. So I know I'm rambling a little bit here, but I just find this question so fascinating. So if you, right now, where do I think turtles go? 
I think turtles are sister to archosaurs. I think turtles are sister to the group made up of, of uh, crocodiles and birds. Now, none of my analyses have ever bared out that answer. Well, only one, I guess, <laughs> uh, using some of these, these things called microRNAs. Uh, but I, I think turtles are nested within diapsids. You know, to ancestor, you know, or the older ideas, they, they thought that turtles were anapsids, nested outside of the animals with, with uh, two holes in their head. Um, but I think we've been able to show that that in turtles is secondarily uh, a derived condition, the, the anapsid condition, the condition where they have no, you know, no holes in their heads. Um, and so I think that they're sister to archosaurs just because there have been so, there's been so much molecular data that have been, uh, you know, published showing this result. When I first started grad school, it was like maybe one or two genes that were, you know, were showing this. So we're talking you know, some pretty big genes, but now we're talking whole genomes, not just isolated genes, but whole genomes. And so, and we're starting to find more morphologic data that suggests that turtles are nested within diapsids and then there are a few characters that may even put them up next to archosaurs so i think it's still a, a, a you know, up for debate and i think there a lot more work needs to be done on this question and that's a question that that i myself as well as uh, colleagues at johns hopkins university with dr gabe bever we're still actively uh trying to figure this out and and uh um I mean, try to bring um, the, the data sets together because that's ultimately ultimately what we want. We don't want to sit here and say, my data are better than your data. That's not very satisfactory. We want to kind of have the coming together of these data sets, the uh, congruence of the data sets, like we now have with the origin of the turtle shell because of the discovery of Achilles. Because before it was evolution or developmental biologists arguing with paleontologists, now the you know because and now we have the fossils and the developmental data coming together to tell the same story on the origin of the shell and that's what we're trying to do now with the morphological data as well as the molecular data we haven't gotten there yet but we're, but we're working on it so but long answer i think they're assisted archosaurs and we still haven't been able to show that uh these these combined analyses but but we're getting closer It's cool. It's it's real cool to see kind of as frustrating as it must be. It's mm -hmm. it's it's uh, it's sort of the one of the biggest puzzles, and it's like trying to fit all the pieces together. And the, and the 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 genetic data, for in the way I think about it, at least in my mind, is is that the genetic data, if you've got a full genome, you should be covering at least contemporarily. And if you've got uh, fossil genomes, that sort of thing, you're getting historic data, but that should cover all of the things that you would see from an evolutionary development perspective or just a paleontological perspective. It's capturing all the variation and the similarities should pretty much fit what the other lines of evidence will fit. I mean, is that kind of the right way to think about that or are, is there some nuance there that's missing? Yeah, well, I think, and I'm, I mean, generally, yeah. I mean, I think the challenge with a lot of the molecular data is that you're only sampling the tips, right? You're only sampling what's alive today because you can't get genomes from 
Odontochelae, unfortunately. Right, right. right. You're just sampling up here. And what we're trying to figure out are these evolutionary relationships that go back 260 million years. And in some cases, uh, we're, we're quite rapid, right? I mean, the, the splitting off of turtles from other archosaurs may have been very rapid, you know, after, you know, uh, around these mass extinction events. So figuring out origins of groups is always, always very difficult and always very messy. Uh, because a lot of times these origins happen again after the mass mass extinction where groups are diversifying radiating um very very quickly and so in order to capture that and see that if you will with molecular data is really really challenging and then with molecular dating you're modeling it and you're trying to find the appropriate genes that are evolving at the right evolutionary rate to capture something that happened again 260 million years ago because there's other genes that are, are sort of turning over if you will at a much quicker rate they're evolving much faster like or like rna is not a great thing to be looking for you know and using to be figuring out deep uh, old evolutionary relationships so instead you want to find other things that are much more slowly evolving uh, slowly evolving genes where they complete, haven't completely erased uh, their their uh, nucleotide sequence of data, yeah, again, if you will. So it's really complicated, right? I mean, it's really, really complicated. And on the morphology side, we just want to find some good features that unite um, the different clades together. And the first step on that was figuring out what some of these earliest uh, proto-stem turtles would have would have looked like and so we've come a long way now in the last you know 10 or 15 years with odontochelae and eorhynchelae and papachelae and you know the saurus like all of those are shedding light on you know what these earliest earliest animals look like these earliest turtles and now we want to compare these early proto turtles with these earliest archosaurs and so I think we have a good understanding of what these early turtles look like right now. And we have a less good understanding of what these early archosaurs or early lepidosaurs would have looked like because the fossil record isn't as good for, for, uh, for either of those groups. So, you know, so both, both data sets are challenged, I guess. It's, that's that's the, the, the short of it. Right, still a lot to sort of uncover there. Uh, the, one, yep. the 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 you mentioned kind of the molecular clock analysis thing. That that's something that's that's kind of cool to think about. But like you said, a lot of pitfalls with that. I, and and you've done some work with like fossil calibrations. I believe like time calibration. I'm just I'm sort of what some of the pitfalls with that are because it seems logistically like the statistical front or the the distributional frameworks you use for that I, i've used like bayesian inference for modeling ecology questions but kind of how that fits into paleontology is sort of foreign to me i'm curious kind of how how do you do that what's what's kind of the the log there yeah and i'll i'll say that i'm not an expert in the on the uh, the analysis side of things so any of any of the times where i've worked with figuring out divergence time estimations on modern turtles or in reptiles in general i always work with a specialist who's a who's very knowledgeable in those uh those arenas in the uh uh the bayesian and beast type uh, of analyses 
Um, and so there's a number of challenges on just the analytics. And I really am not the person that can, can speak to that. But then there's also the challenges on my end, on the paleo end, because you need to calibrate your molecular clocks. You, you need to calibrate those with fossils, um, you know, to help figure out, you know, the, the rate of, of these molecular clock, uh, uh, you know, to help, to help calibrate the molecular clocks to then figure out the, the divergent states. And the challenge is, is you, you want, is, is the spottiness of the fossil record. So anytime that I've, we, that I've worked with different folks on this, it's figuring out like what are the, the best calibration points and then the ages. So we need the fossils and then you need those rocks, the fossils in which the fossils are found, you need those rocks to be well dated. So that way you can, again, help calibrate. And so um, it's, it's finding good fossils that you can say like, yes, this is the earliest uh, crown snapping turtle not on the stem, but a crown. And so again, that's that's the challenge of finding good fossils. And so I worked with a Jim Parham and Walter Joyce, uh, who are both uh, fossil experts. And we came up with um, a very robust uh, fossil, fossil turtle calibration points so that all molecular uh, uh, geneticists could, could use those. And our goal was to, you know, to come up with, with the best ones that we all, all of us really, really agreed on because there was a lot of some that were very, very controversial of whether this was the earliest, um, you know, like sea turtle or things like that. And you know, the idea was that when, when we died and we're at the, the, the gates of turtle heaven, that uh, the, the, the turtle god would be like, yes, this, this was, this was a, you guys did, a, did us a solid on, on this. And so... That was a sort of our internal joke, and uh, and then we teamed up with a group at the University of uh, in Brit of Bristol, and uh, in England, and there they were the real brains behind these, uh, as well as Jim Parham, I should say, were the brains behind these setting up these these different studies and figuring out when turtles diverge. And so one of the big questions is like, when did modern day turtles diverge? And we've been talking about stem turtles or proto turtles. But when did when was the modern radiation of living turtles? When did that occur? And sort of there's these different hypotheses of it was in the Jurassic or it was all the way back further back in the Triassic, so separated by some 30 million years or so. And our our, our analyses um, all and I think even, I think they're pretty well accepted because we published these and I think in 2011 2013 have all been pretty well substantiated and, uh, and, and showing that, it, that the major radiation of turtles seems to have occurred in the, uh, the earliest Jurassic. So, yeah. it's it, so again, it's, it's an exciting time because, you know, for, for, to be a, for paleontologists because our, a lot of our data now are being used by uh, molecular biologists in figuring out divergence point estimations, uh, developmental biologists who are trying, you know, tinkering with genes and tinkering with the timing and placement of transcription factors or genes or this or that to try to figure out how the turtle formed its shell. But with that, you can kind of, it's almost like Frankenstein type science. Uh, 
And I say that in the nicest way possible, but but we need the fossil record to then go back here to say like, well, we can change, we, we can create this morphology using, you know, by changing this, these sequences or changing the timing of these, the, the, or the placement of these, of these genes uh, or transcription factors. But did that morphology actually ever occur? Right, or is this really just Frankenstein type science? And the way, you know, we can look at that is by looking at the fossil record and saying, like, oh yes, we do have an animal that has broad ribs but doesn't have uh, a plastron, or we do have an animal that has broad ribs and a broad plastron. So, you know, I, I think I, again, it's uh, it's an exciting time because our data of the, the fossil record data is becoming very, very useful now for molecular as well as developmental biologists we're all working together now to to help you know answer these really big questions jack are you saying something oh it's <laughs> how to how to phrase this but i was uh where where do the like myelina forms like fit into all of this like with in, in like comparison to modern turtles like that's, that's been kind of unclear to me for a while and i've always i've wanted to know more uh about that yeah these myelaniforms are these awesome turtles that lived in gondwana so they live in the, you know the southern hemisphere found uh, some amazing fossils in australia and lord howe island uh, uh juliana sterley's been finding a lot of amazing fossil these fossils down in argentina and these are these crazy, you know, horned turtles, right? I mean, uh, really, really cool, cool animals. They have like they have tail clubs, big bison-like horns, right? I mean, they're not they're not they're not bison horns, but I mean, they have these big projections. Anyway, some of the coolest turtles that that ever lived in the group, you know, went extinct not all that long ago, in uh, in the Pleistocene, and um, the thought with these is that they're all stem turtles. Um, so there is some debate, um, you know, like Gene Gaffney, who is one of the, the big, the big main researchers of fossil turtles. He he put them in one part of the tree, you know, higher up in the crown. Um, but he was also kind of on the fence, if, you know, if you really if you really chatted with him. Uh, but more, all of the recent analyses place the myelinids on the stem, kind of the, this evolutionary lead up to the modern crown. So they're 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 stem turtles. They're stem turtles, uh, not as basal as like Perganachelys or Paleocursus or Proterocursus, you know, higher up than that, but still really really basal. That all that were almost that almost made it to today, right? I mean, I just that's what a shame that because they're just some of the coolest turtles that ever lived. Uh, they would have been like the 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 monotremes uh, of turtles, right? Because you know, the platypus, right? That's a group that's almost almost went extinct. There's only three, right? Three monotremes, um, but they say so much about the evolution of mammals, and and uh, they're so important. And I think had we had the myelinids, you know, alive with us today, I mean, they would tell us we would maybe we wouldn't be here uh, trying to figure out the origin of turtles, for example, of where turtles go, because I think they, they, they could tell us a lot. So anyway, cool group of turtles. Wish yeah. they were with us. All that question pretty well. Almost. Definitely keeps me up at night knowing we were so close to just being able to see them out in the field. Yeah. I know. I always wonder, you know, like with, 
you know, can we pull genetic data from them and with the CRISPR technology, right. this is not my area. I'm a paleontologist, right? But is there any chance, and, you know, I'm sure at some point we're going to bring back the woolly mammoth. We're gonna I mean, if we can bring mammoth. back the woolly mammoth, it's, it seems like it'd be feasible to bring yeah. back some uh, myelinids. It does, put right? Him, I mean, again, put him in I'm not the expert at all. But, yeah. I mean, it's crazy because humans and myelinids did coexist at some point in history. It just yeah. blows my mind. Like, in the, in the you know... The grand scheme of things, it's like super duper close. We missed them by a hair. You, exactly. Yep. Likely uh, eaten to extinction. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's like the Hesperotestudos. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I mean, it's wild. I mean, I, I know we're wandering here, but turtles have made it through these three, you know, three, the last three mass extinctions, largely unscathed. This is always an important point I, I talk about when I do my tours at the museum or when I do some of my turtle talks is that. Turtles do really well. We don't really know how they do, how well they do across the Permian Triassic because there's not a good fossil record, but they are the winners at the uh, 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 Cretaceous Paleocene mass extinction. They do the best out of any of the amnio groups. If you only looked at turtles, you wouldn't know there was a mass extinction then, you know, when a, this giant asteroid strikes Earth. But now, Turtles are one of the hardest hit groups, which is why we need more people like the three of you guys and, and anybody who's listening here, uh, people interested in you know, the conservation of turtles because turtles are one of the hardest hit groups now among the amniotes um, because they are so well adapted for dealing with these natural disasters in terms of asteroids and climate change and this and that, but they're not that well adapted for for uh, humans, essentially, and the overpopulation of the world by, by humans. And so, right, I mean, myelanids likely went extinct because humans were, were eating them. And that's just really sad. And there's a lot of other, like, a lot of other examples, why that you, like, you had just mentioned, you know, there's a lot of examples of that. It's just, it's just a shame. Mm-hmm. Very sad. Um, our, tortoise of- got, uh, our tortoise diversity got hit so hard. And, Yep. Uh, it is just amazing to think of it that I was going to say something about it earlier when uh, how robust turtles are in general at getting through all of these natural mass extinctions and just chucking them off while the rest of the animals are getting uh, hit much harder. But then we're like the biggest challenge. We could potentially be the biggest challenge they've ever faced, depending on how the next few centuries go. Uh it just it speaks to how unnatural this sixth mass extinction that we're very likely uh, entering into is, right? I mean, I think that really just underscores it. It's just, it's just not like any of the other mass extinctions. And I mean, to be fair, each of the last mass extinctions have all been different. Um, this is just the next, the next iteration. I am optimistic because I know, I mean, like you said, the tortoises are getting hammered and there's other groups of turtles that are really, really getting hammered. Um, and there's only what 356 species to begin with. So you, when you cut it, you, know, you take out a few, you're really cutting down percentage wise on the number of, 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 of turtles. Um, but I am optimistic that turtles will survive this, you know, as uh, the group as a whole, it's just that the diversity is going is really going to get, is really going to suffer. But there are some turtles that just do really well that are able to cohabit, habitate with humans, you know, quite well. Um, but still, need to do more to save these magnificent animals, that's for sure. 
Yeah, I think, I think that's a good point. It's that turtles, I don't think we have to worry about turtles as a whole disappearing. That's, but it's how much diversity are we going to lose is really like, right. I, mean, I, I agree. I think the rate of sliders going anywhere, but <laughs> right. yeah. there are dozens and dozens of other species that are like right on the cusp of like, where we're going to lose those lineages most likely. And yeah. we've already lost. So yeah. Some of the giant soft shell turtles, right. We're yeah. Yeah. Um, I have to go soon uh, to go to work, but I, I just wanted to squeeze in one last question from me um, mm -hmm. right before I leave. Um, Jack and I have, since we were speaking about Hespero testudo and burrowing or earlier, uh, Jack and I both have this little hypothesis that maybe Hespero testudo could have been a burrower, much like Gophrys is now. Mm -hmm. uh, what, do you th what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that could have been a possibility? Yeah, I mean, I think it has, I think a lot of the modern day tortoises, they're, they're burrowing animals and they, you know, obviously it's very big, but I mean, it had a big giant claws. Um, I mean, mm -hmm. I think I, uh, I think it was probably, I think that's a solid hypothesis. I yeah. Cause I mean, well adapted for, for burrowing. Yeah. Cause I mean, they lived in a similar, uh, when it was similar megafaunal mm -hmm. mammals. So like, uh, mastodons that the sulcata tortoises in Africa deal with today. So I feel like they mm -hmm. could have built a very similar niche. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, there's always a spectrum from you know barely being able to dig to being a very well adept burrower like Gopharis, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, um, being one of these keystone species. And so maybe Hesperotestudo was somewhere there, you know, in in the middle. So um, and figuring that out, like even with the Keyboardosaurus, this is something I've thought a lot about is trying to figure out like where on the spectrum, but it's really challenging to figure out where on the spectrum. You can just simply sort of list all of the different osteological core, you know, correlates that these animals have either for digging or for counteracting um, the, the force and the tension created by digging. And so, um, and I haven't done that. I did, I've done that for like Gopharis and Unotosaurus and made the comparison that those two were very, very similar. But that's something you might be able to do uh, to test that idea, to test that idea, just to see like, how many how many correlates are there, and how do they match up to something that's really that everybody knows uh, is a, a re really adept uh, burrower. All right, cool. Yeah, I hadn't particularly considered. Uh, I just looking at the bones I've collected is kind of how I was thinking of that, but I'm pretty sure that conclusion's been uh thrown around and, and and talked about a long and for a long time with that genes uh mm -hmm. but just seeing it for myself really was like kind of made me pick the side of like yeah these these had to have been whereas i mean the forelimbs the, the shape of the shell uh the massive like osteoderms and it, it's very such a similar build to a sulcata like you were saying uh they i mean it wouldn't make total sense if they were burrowers but mm -hmm. uh, i think on the topic of fossils, uh, what would be, what was one of your more interesting fossil discoveries? Uh, and where have you found fossil turtles that have, like you've least expected? Yeah, man. So I've mostly, you know, my, most of my field work is in, um, around the, uh, Cretaceous Paleogene boundary. So I do a lot of work and found and named lots of new species of turtles from, just before the extinction and just after uh, the mass the mass extinction. And some of my favorite, I mean, I think my favorite locality is a locality that I named the Turtle Graveyard. And it's just this super rich locality from the Hell Creek Formation where we found, 
I think uh, over 60 specimens and turtles in the Hell Creek are quite rare. You know, so the Hell Creek formation is the, uh, the rock unit that's famous because it's Earth's last dinosaur ecosystem. Um, and you have T-Rex and Triceratops and then a whole diversity of other animals, including turtles. And turtles are just, are not, nice turtles are, and skulls are just not that common. And I found one locality that's just produced uh, a remarkable assemblage of, of amazing turtles. And uh, new, several of which are that are, are new to science um, that I've named over the years. Uh, one I named a Gamera Baina. So Gamera is the, the fire-breathing turtle in Godzilla. So I thought that was a, a solid name. Um, and that, that's been one of my favorite localities, I think, just because we've been excavating it for years and years, and we're finding articulated hands and feet. And, um, and then I have to mention one other one, because and this isn't one that I found, but it's one that I worked on. And uh, this is one from rocks that are 76 million years old. It's from the Kaparowitz Formation. Yeah. And here we found uh, the Basilemmes turtle. And so Basilemmes is a giant, big, about a, a meter, meter carapace. Um, and it's a tortoise-like turtle. It's not related to tortoises, but it was, you know, it's a, a turtle you know, that belongs to the Nanzun Keelid clade. And it goes extinct at the, at the Cretaceous-Paleogene boundary. Uh, but it's one of the cooler turtles because it's got a big shell. It's tortoise-like in that it was eating plants. It was living on the land. It had giant osteoderms all over its body. And we found one locality in uh, the Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument in Utah that had uh, six individuals. And two of the individuals had eggs in their bellies. Um, so it's something that I'm currently working on, currently working on, on publishing. But it's just such a remarkable uh, uh uh, locality because we have these amazingly well-preserved fossils, articulated hands and feet and uh, skulls and neck. And, but then, I mean, the real cherry on top is, is finding two of them that had eggs that had not yet been laid, you know, so they had started to ossify obviously, but they were both uh, two, two uh, gravid females uh, in, in this, in this deposit, which is really cool. That, yeah, that, that's fascinating. That, that's not common. I mean, you said this was just a terrestrial deposit, right? So that just to find that, yeah. that's really interesting. Hmm. Yeah, and to capture that moment from when the eggs have started to ossify to when the when the, when she would would have laid the eggs, you know, that's only about a, a one to couple week window where you would have you know where you could capture that where the eggs were ossified enough and where they hadn't been laid so obviously very sad uh, but you know we're going to be able to say a lot about uh, seasonality as well as the fact that we have six of these turtles all together we might see something about sociality of, of the, this group of turtle as a whole and they're, they're, the group's extinct so it's pretty cool that we'll be able to provide some key insights into environment as well as maybe uh the behavior of this group of turtle which i think is pretty cool that's real interesting yeah well I, we can start to sort of wrap things up but i've got one last sort of quick question um yeah, maybe not a quick question but one last kind of big question um in terms of so you you mentioned earlier working on sort of the 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 split of turtles and the, the deep time stem lineage split. Um, but in terms of more contemporary or just along the, I guess, crown testidine uh, phylogeny, where are the biggest problems 
uh, that you think that need to be resolved? Um, I think the the, the biggest uh, is soft shell turtles. Soft shell turtles, the the aliens of of uh, of uh, turtles. You know, where do they fit in? I mean, obviously they're they're, they're cryptodires, but you in some molecular data places them sort of a trichotomy with cryptodires and pleurodires. And we all agree that they're cryptodires, but I mean, when and where did they diverge? And what are some of these early transitional yeah. fossils? What do those look like? And we'll likely find those in the early Cretaceous, maybe late uh, Jurassic of uh, probably Asia, because the group likely originated, you know, it seems like it un undoubtedly originated in uh, the Northern Hemisphere and probably uh, maybe in Asia. So, I think that's a really big question, just soft shell, the evolution of, 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 of soft shell turtles in general. I think that's a big one. So it would be awesome to find some fossils from early Cretaceous. You know, we're getting some from um, China. It would be nice to find, start finding more, you know, older and that have more of these, uh, you know, again, these transitional morphologies. So we can talk about uh, uh, sort of how and when that body plan, which is really unique even within a unique body plan, right? Already within turtles, but uh, soft shell turtles are, I think are very, very fascinating and, and, and a lot more work needs to be done on the origin of that group. That's yeah, where, that's... I mean, for me, that's the biggest, that's I think uh, one, of the, one of the bigger questions. It's like, it's curious to think about what kind of environmental factors led to that it's such a reduction of safety for speed it's like takes it way to the extreme so yeah, yeah to understand why that is yeah so it'd but, be interesting to see like, how that occurred uh was it whole hog where they started to lose all of their peripherals or was there a certain pattern to that you know this reduction of uh, of their shell and then when that occurred and then the environment in which they're found so we can start to you piece together that story because I do think that is uh, that's one of these untold stories. Um, uh, so, be a great a great project for somebody. What when's the oldest? How old is the oldest soft shell fossil that we have? I think uh, it goes back into the uh, the early Cretaceous. Okay. Yeah, like the Jahol. Jahol, I think there might be even, there's fragments that are even older than that. So my, in my, I know my colleague, Walter Joyce, he, he currently has a grant and he's working on aspects of, of this. Um, and so I know it's something that he and I talk a lot about, but uh, we won't be able to make uh, some serious inroads until we start to find more fossils. So that's going to be one of the, the key challenges. So um, they're out there. They got to be out there, right? I mean, yeah. It's just like, but I mean, we might have to wait many more years. Again, it's analogous to the oldest turtle, which I keep on going back to, right? I mean, 100, 120 years, Perganachilles is all we had. And then, yeah. man, now it's just been a bonanza of new, amazing transitional stem turtle morphologies just in the last 10 to 15 years. So we're sort of waiting for that to happen with, uh, with uh, softshell turtles. I seem to recall too molecular phylogenies put the split at when they were just considered to be a group that was separate from the cryptodires and pleurodires, like a like you said the trichotomy yep, almost. The trichotomy. It, it was at like 160 million years, and I think the oldest fossil was like 110 
So it, it that seems like there's so much more time that needs to get filled in. I mean, it, yeah, and I would say that that split is is way too old. I mean, that's some of these challenges with some of the molecular divergence time estimations is that they oftentimes put the estimates way too old. I mean, we understand as paleontologists that our record is imperfect, that we're not always going to find the oldest of anything. It's just the nature the nature of, of, of our data. But our data aren't that bad where we're going to have, you know, 100 million year gap in, in a lot of our, you know, there might be a, occasional, you know, occasional gaps like that for various reasons, environmental reasons, but for soft, for turtles, we wouldn't expect that just because turtles are living in environments where deposition is occurring. And so therefore we should be finding um, some, of, some of these fossils. Um, the challenge with the earliest turtles is that a lot of them were, were terrestrial, not living in water or living in other environments but soft shell turtles we fully expect were were uh aquatic at least so we should find them so i know there it's a it's a challenge i mean the molecular data places them so far back i don't think any paleo, no paleontologist thinks they go that far back and i think we all think they're w well within uh cryptodire turtles but i think that's interesting that the molecular data is even showing that so there's something interesting going on with the molecular data there um but somebody that's more savvy with molecular data than I am should uh, and could uh, could could address. And the confidence interval may just overlap. Like it, it's got to be something ridiculous. So it's <laughs> just a lot. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's like a best guess, but really rough estimate. Yeah, well, that, yeah. That yeah. that's uh that's a, a definitely interesting turtles and a, a cool uh, take on it. But uh, I guess for a last sort of to wrap things up here. Uh, just if you had one piece or one piece or multiple pieces of advice for someone looking to make turtle and tortoise work part of a career uh, or a career, what would that be? Well, I think I, I would say that, uh, I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot of work to be done. I think we need a lot more. I would just encourage anybody to go on and, and make a, a career of it. Um, and there's a lot of work to be done and there are a lot of amazing fossils. So just speaking from my field, uh, uh, and not all, you know, extant turtles and whatnot, but just being a paleo turtleologist, if you will, we need a lot more people uh, in the field, uh, pushing our, our field forward. And I think it'd be a good, it's a, it's a good opportunity. Uh, unlike some other areas, like a lot of paleontologists, they want to go study dinosaurs. They want to go study T-Rex. They want to go study the, you know, the, uh, and there's just not that many fossils compared to turtles. We have an amazing fossil record and a lot of it is hugely, hugely understudied. And there's a lot of big evolutionary questions that could be addressed with fossil turtles because we have such a great fossil record. Um, and it's not a, a oversaturated field, unlike that in dinosaur land or in anthropology, people studying hominid fossils. So I just it would encourage more people to consider fossil turtles because great data set, big evolutionary questions. And then I think you could go and, and uh, use that to really catapult your, your career. Um, and it's more relevant, I think, than studying a group of organisms that is extinct. It's one of the reasons why I studied fossil turtles versus dinosaurs, because I've also collected lots of dinosaurs. And so during my PhD, it was like dinosaurs or turtles. 
and I ultimately chose turtles over dinosaurs because of the better fossil record and then they're more relevant to today because they're still alive and uh, um, I think uh, they're, they're just a great model organism to study and so I would just encourage more uh, budding herpetologists and paleoherpetologists to uh, to you know consider studying fossil turtles. Sweet, that's uh, some yeah, good words. The uh, we'll have to Jason, one of the guys that couldn't make it today, is an anthropology major, so we'll have to. Uh, that's oh, some good advice for him specifically. We'll, we'll let him know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we uh, just to finish things off, we like to do a little. I think I mentioned this just a little quick trivia volley, turtle trivia. Um, and again, I guess the most obscure turtle facts you know, um, just a way to bring in one of our previous guests said that the knowledge that is can't be used anywhere else that we pride ourselves on knowing. <laughs> so, I don't know if you've got a few turtle trivia questions for us, or we can uh, throw a few your way or whatever you want to do. I mean, well, let's hear some of yours. I want to. I want to see, and I doubt I'll, I'll have the answers to them. But I. But I want. I want to add add to my knowledge. I have. I have a few, but I'm sure this group, this audience, already knows my turtle trivia. I'm used to giving turtle trivia to the the broader public, which knows nothing about turtles. I feel like this audience is a pretty well, pretty knowledgeable uh, on their fossil turtles given the name of the podcast. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, there's some some niche things that probably could, you could pull out. But, yeah, we can throw a few your way. Uh, Jack, I don't know if you've got something. I've, I've got something I'm thinking of. I'll toss one. I'll toss one to you. I've got one that just kind of popped into my head. It's not super exciting, uh, but we'll see. So the, the map turtles and sawbacks uh, – that we were talking about those earlier, uh, but the extant species, um, the there's something interesting about the females versus the males. Uh, they get much larger and bigger heads. Uh, but the question I've got is approximately, this isn't like, an, there's not really an exact answer for this, but approximately what is the difference between the age at reproductive maturity for a female and a male? So what's the difference between the, the females mature later on. I'll give you that hint. But what's what what's approximately the difference in, in age? Five years. I mean, it, it's close. I would say I, I, more like based on current estimates, probably eight to ten. Uh, but okay. but five's close enough. And it, it, it that was yeah. a wild guess on my part. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's it's not bad for for. Uh, kind of a niche question but so yeah so how many how many uh turtles go extinct at the cretaceous paleogene boundary that we have good data for <laughs> yeah see that so to put that in context 90 percent of mammals go extinct 75 percent of life goes extinct uh 60 percent of, of angiosperms go ex extinct so in North America, we'll just start with Attic. Uh, how many how many lineages of, of turtles uh, go, goes extinct? I'm thinking about this. Uh, there's a number that's popping in my head, but I don't know why. I think it's a little too high. Uh, I, I can throw it out there. Uh, we, we'll see. Maybe a higher. I, I'd say like 25 to 30. 
So in North America, so it's one of the most diverse uh, ecosystems for tur fossil turtle ecosystems. It's you know comparable to that found in down in you know in Louisiana or down in Louisiana or in Alabama. So there's like you know 35 or so species of turtles in North America um, in this one drainage system in the Hell Creek drainage system, if you will. And we only have evidence for two species going extinct during the after you know at, across the cretaceous paleogene boundary which yeah. just underscores how well they did right dinosaurs yeah. wiped out non-avian dinosaurs 90 percent lepidosaurs you know lizards 90 percent um and turtles it's like two two uh, lineage or two species you know heliponoplia and uh the basilemmes this big land tortoise-like animal so so like seven, That's, six or seven percent, something around there. That's, right. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It's basically background extinction. So you again, you won't you won't even know there was a mass extinction, which is wild. You won't know a, a giant space rock hit Earth, right? If you only looked at turtles. Uh, just speaks to how resilient that, that group is. That's impressive. Wow. Jack, I don't know. You want to throw one more and then Dr. Leeson, maybe throw one more at us and we can wrap stuff up. It's always tough getting these on the spot. I'm trying to, th I, I, uh, I had one. Hmm. So I, I always have one and it's not my work, but I mean, I, I just love that the turtles are able to slow down their metabolism to a point where they only have one to two heartbeats per minute. This audience probably knows that, right? They're probably familiar with some of those physiological studies that have been done. Um, but, uh, I know when I give that to the, to the broader audience, like that's something that folks find uh, pretty, and that's not that obscure, but it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that is. I was, uh, digging through some stuff recently too, and that like they compare the top end of a cheetah versus an anoxic turtle. And it was yep. like 160,000 times difference. So like yeah. that statistic, <laughs> that's just crazy too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the physio physiology, I mean, I think that's where you get the most amazing facts about turtles. It's just their their physiology, their ability to, to estivate for up to six months. I mean, um, yeah, and that's all the work of what Jackson, I'm drawing a blank on his first name, uh, wrote the book, uh, Life in the Half Shell. Amazing book. If the folks in the, haven't read that, that's a, that's an incredible book. Yeah, that's a that's a good one for sure. That's uh, all right, cool. Jack's drawing a blank, I think. You got something. It's something about I I don't know terrapins or something. It's got to be like relevant. I'm trying to. Mine wasn't relevant at all. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well we can we can start to wrap things up. If Jack finds one uh, in the next like thirty seconds, he can ask it. But when, I think he's uh, for. Oh, there he goes. He's no, right, never mind. We'll, we'll just. I'll, I'll have to. I'll give up on that one. <laughs> All right. Well, that's. Uh, I think that's a good place to end it. Uh, Doctor Leeson, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, it's been a real pleasure, and and I've I've certainly learned a lot. Uh, it's real cool to, yeah. 
Yeah, Go ahead. pleasure being here. I really appreciate uh, being on and uh, being able to chat with fellow uh, turtle lovers. I mean, these really are just magnificent animals and yeah. we need more people studying basically all aspects of, of their biology and paleontology and ultimately to help, I think, um, conserve, you know, and to save the, the biodiversity, you know, the, the, their biodiversity because they're, they're definitely hurting. So we, we need more good turtle workers and turtle lovers out there. I'm back. <laughs> my manager texted me while I was on my way in. We're overstaffed, so got <laughs> me off for the day. Perfect timing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're closing out now. But yeah, we just kind of did the trivia, so you didn't didn't miss too much. Wow. But yeah, that, yeah. But uh, all right, cool. Well, it's been a pleasure, and thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, and we're gonna sign off.